0: I am here alongside Paul Sweeney, who's filling in for Pim Fox. We're broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Definitely oil prices, as Greg Jarrett was talking about, driving a bunch of the price action that we're seeing in markets today. Oil prices up about 5% as OPEC Plus is said to agree to cut more than people had expected per day. Joining us now, Megan O'Sullivan, professor of international affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School. She's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and also, I'm sure, many other things. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with that OPEC agreement that we have yet to hear all the details on. What was your reaction when you saw that they decided to cut 1.2 billion barrels a day uh, uh, versus the one that they were expected to? Good morning, Lisa.
2: Like others, I was surprised that they went beyond expectations in terms of the cuts. Of course, yesterday, a lot of comments left there uh, a lot of doubt about whether they would reach it, but that's not entirely unheard of. That's pretty much par for the course in many of these um, outcomes. But the real question was, was Russia going to join in? And I think that was one of the the things that people were really uncertain was going to happen. And of course, was Iran going to be an obstacle to a consensus deal? And as it turns out, Iran sought the exemption it wanted. And Russia appears to, as you said, we're still waiting for more details. But given the 1.2 number and the idea that OPEC would be responsible for 800,000 barrels of that cut. Presumably, large uh, Russia has uh, taken on a larger cut than people expected it to agree to. So that's the big surprise there. The other takeaway is just the role that Russia played, and I'm happy to talk more about that.
3: Well, you just led right, right into my question. I, you know, we've... Uh... It's been really interesting how the role of Russia within uh, you know, the whole global oil spectrum uh, you know, has changed. So just give us an update of where you think Russia is today uh, in the global oil markets and kind of maybe what role you expect them to play going forward.
2: Sure. I mean, as many of your viewers will know, there are three really big producers of oil. Uh, today, they're all producing a little over 11 million barrels of oil a day. That's Russia, the U.S., and Saudi Arabia. And so Russia is in a, in a strong position here. It's in a stronger position than many of, of the other large producers because it, um, it has a few protections in its economy that countries that have their currency pegged to the dollar don't have. Uh, we've seen a huge devaluation in the ruble, and that makes the, the Russians effectively get more for their money for every dollar uh, that they sell or every dollar they obtain from selling a barrel of oil buys them more inside Russia than is the case for their their counterparts in the Gulf. So they have more resilience to lower prices. But I think the real key thing coming out of this is there were two obvious winners. One was Iran, because it got its exemption, as I said, but the other is Russia. So everyone, I think, will agree that this deal would have not happened without Russia's help, that Russia has really catapulted itself to be a critical broker in global oil markets. Everyone... uh, pretty much was of the notion, including the Saudis, that this cut had to be done with not just OPEC, but also non-OPEC countries. And Russia was key to that. But Russia was also the mediator between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which had been the sticking point yesterday and into the evening. And so if you also add in the dimension that President Trump clearly did not want this cut to happen, and that Russia was the critical actor in making this happen. The benefits to Russia go beyond even the bump in oil prices that we've already started to see.
0: Right, but a geopolitical kind of uh, stature. A geopolitical, well, exactly. So, so it kind of it kind of leads me into wondering what this means for the U.S. versus Russia, right? Because OPEC has kind of been losing stature as the U.S. increases its output, becoming a next net exporter for the first time ever, uh, as we learned yesterday. I just have to wonder, what does this do to the U.S.-Russia relationship, and is OPEC's cut? going to make as much difference as the market uh, seems to think based on U.S. output?
2: Right. I I think, you know, I'm of the view that it's not just the U.S. output, the sheer volume of barrels that the U.S. is producing, but it's the nature of the shale oil industry in the United States that makes OPEC weaker. It basically, because of the way that shale is produced, it reacts to price rarely to, very quickly compared to conventional oil production. So an increase in price is almost always quickly associated with a bump in production. And so that eats away at any gain that OPEC makes in the price market uh, quite quickly. So I think that certainly this is not the kind of deal that um, would have – it it won't have the long-term effects that it might have had in a different oil market. And, you know, going back to the point about has OPEC been diminished, OPEC um, would not be able to have the effect that it's having without Russia – which, of course, is not a member of OPEC. So really the idea that OPEC alone can have a big impact on the markets, I think is really an idea of the past, in large part because of American production, but also because of a few other dynamics. So we do see that OPEC alone doesn't matter as much as it used to. It's really OPEC plus non-OPEC. And if we're really honest about it, and these are the details we'll have to wait for, it really looks a lot like Russia and Saudi Arabia. And this calls into question about the of OPEC as an organization over the long long run. We saw Qatar leave the organization or announce it's leaving the organization. And in part, that's because smaller countries are getting frustrated with this uh, Russia-Saudi detente in the sense that these two countries are really the only ones that matter and the voices of small countries um, are pretty peripheral.
3: So, Megan, do we even care then whether OPEC sticks to this uh, production cut in years past and decades past? It was uh, very closely watched, and they did not ha- did not have a great track record of sticking with their decisions. Do we care?
2: Well, I think we care in the sense that it affects our economy. Even though we're a net exporter, we're still really tied to global markets. And so when there is a change in the supply and demand balance globally, that affects America's American consumers and America's economy directly, um, one way or the other. So either it's a benefit or it's a, 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 a detractor. But also this matters for American companies because they, of course, are deeply affected and our stock market affected by the price of oil. I don't think this is an existential issue for the United States because we are now in a different economic space. It used to be that low oil prices were really uh, closely correlated uh, with a bump in growth for the U.S. economy and now in part because we have such a large energy sector ourselves and we have so many uh, sectors and producers and Related industries that benefit from a high oil price, it's not as clear cut as it used to be. You know, you might even say, I haven't done all the math, but you might even say, you know, uh, it's sort of a wash for the U.S. if the price goes up or down because you're helping consumers and producers, all of them in the United States, one way or the other. So I think we do care. It does affect us, particularly if um, things go to one extreme or the other. But I don't think this cut, one, you know, it's only. Uh, supposed to go until April. Two, we'll have to see if Russia actually cuts. I mean, Mm -hmm. Russia has a history of saying it's going to cooperate with OPEC and not cutting. It did depart from that pattern in 2016, but we'll have to watch that closely again. Um, But,
0: you know, a lot of a lot of wonderful points. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor Megan O'Sullivan of Harvard's Kennedy School, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, alongside Paul Sweeney. We are broadcasting live from Bloomberg's 11:30 headquarters. Lisa Abramowitz here alongside Paul Sweeney, who is director of North American Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, The jobs report this morning was the narrative for about five minutes before OPEC came out and then after we got some of the uh, new announcements from President Trump. And now there's trade tensions taking over. But let's go back to jobs because at the end of the day, a strong jobs backdrop will caused the Fed to hike rates. And Tom Gimbel now joining us, founder and chief executive of LaSalle Network in Chicago. Tom, can you give us an on-the-ground look at the jobs market? How good is it today compared with six months ago?
4: It's just as good as it was six months ago, Lisa. the, The big challenge that people are facing is... There's so much fear and intrepidation that we're in the ninth inning of this economy that it's got to fall off. That it, you know, people want it might become a self fulfilling prophecy, but companies are still hiring. We saw that we averaged or put in 150 thousand uh, new jobs, non farm payroll, and we saw that there. Yes, it did drop a little bit for the for uh, the October numbers as well. were were recast a little bit, but the the economy great. It is, is the, the job sector is as strong as it's ever been
3: so Tom can you tell us where in particular you're seeing strength as you try to place some of your clients um, in the job market where are some areas that are showing you know, surprising strength and maybe even conversely where are some areas that you're surprised you know, aren't stronger
4: well, I mean, we, the, the traditional stalwarts are, are still there, right? Healthcare, transportation, uh, and transportation and logistics and warehouse, and then and then back office. When we're seeing accounting, finance, technology are still strong, and companies are still hiring salespeople by the truckload. No pun intended on the the strength in logistics. But when we look at this situation, when companies are hiring salespeople, they want to aggressively take take uh, control of their destiny in the short term and get those numbers going. I know people are fearful of what happened with General Motors and, and Ford coming with some layoffs on manufacturing and forecasting three, five years down the road, but healthcare is still strong. Technology, still strong. So, I, I'm very optimistic about what's going on. Now, I think the interesting thing about logistics and warehouse increasing the numbers is that that probably shows how retail's shifting, right? Is that it's not in-store retail as much as it is warehouse and e-commerce, but it shows me that people are still forecasting uh, a strong Christmas.
0: Well, Tom, this brings me to my next question, which is, you know, packing boxes is a very different experience and different skill set than being in a store and talking to customers and trying to, you know, cater to their needs. And I'm just wondering what you make of the increase in jobs for people who don't have a high school degree and whether that sort of indicates that the real job gains are coming on the lower end of the scale and what that means.
4: The real job gains are coming on the lower end, and what we see, so traditionally, when you have a cold November, cold December, and then you see that the housing market isn't as strong, and you see that there isn't as much construction going on, that the blue-collar jobs are going to shift, and when they shift... goes warehouse that that's happening. You don't need a college degree. Now, you don't need a college degree to work retail at, at Nordstrom or, or Macy's either on the floor. So there's really, it might be a different skill set of packing a box versus selling a piece of clothing. However, the the, the the type of education needed isn't that different. And I think we've got to get into the market of, hey, this is where the jobs are. And if you want to get one, they are available. Now, we're still seeing it at the Fifty to 100,000 and 100,000 to 150,000 level, whether it be developers, whether it be accountants, whether it be marketing professionals, and it's a global economy. The job may not be working for a company in your city. It may be doing it remotely, may be doing it from home, which... Three years ago, people were excited about. So you've got to be flexible on where the jobs are and how you're going to be working. It's just a little bit of a shift right now.
3: So, Tom, let's talk about wages. You, you talk about a couple of uh, you know, compensation bans that you think are out there in the marketplace. We saw a little bit in today's uh, numbers um, uh, some wage uh, inflation uh, coming back into the market. But one could argue that uh, given the strength uh, of the economy and given where we are in terms of employment, i.e., near or at full employment, we should be seeing even higher wages. What are you seeing out there?
4: Yeah. You know what i don't know if i necessarily buy into that argument paul and reason being is there's a global economy and so we're not competing against somebody in the on the cul-de-sac or in the apartment building for the job you're competing against somebody on the other side of the world for a lot of it so that's going to keep that there isn't going to be huge no matter how strong the economy is there isn't going to be huge wage gains we're also seeing that the effect of the hourly increases in municipality and the overtime or on the uh, minimum wage increase has taken effect uh over the past few months and we've seen some of that, too. So you're not going to see huge wage gain every single month of the report. And as we continue to go, right, summer is more of the increase in hospitality, and that really affects into it as uh, wages are reported for servers and people in that line of business. So when we're talking about regular white collar increases in, in wages, you're just not going to see it at the rapid rate that a lot of people want to. What we should see is we added over 150,000 jobs with 3.7% unemployment. In any Other economy when we're not talking about Chicken Little waiting for the sky to fall, people are going to say those are great numbers for this many months in a row. All
0: right, Tom Gimbel, who is not Chicken Little, Uh, Tom Gimbel, founder and chief executive of Lasalle Network, coming to us from Chicago. Paul, uh, you were noticing this before. The market's really rolling over right now, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it really is. I think you know we kind of opened kind of you know calmly this morning. I thought we would have a you know maybe a a little bit of a a low volatility today, but it's just kind of dropped off the market here. And now we're down you know again. Uh, On the equity indices, over 1.5% pretty much across the board.
0: Yeah, the NASDAQ leading the way down. You have to wonder why China trade tensions right now is uh, sort of gaining the, uh, the, the sort of top of the narrative creation here. I mean, more than OPEC, more than jobs, it's trade tensions. We'll keep you posted. I'm Lisa Abramowitz.
3: Cotter
0: I'm joined by Paul Sweeney, who is Director of North American Research at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Joining me uh, instead of Pem Fox, who is off today on a well-deserved vacation. Uh, Definitely the tone of the day is jobs. And there is a big question, as Tom Gimbel of LaSalle Network was raising earlier in the show, which is the biggest gains are happening at the lower end. The middle is kind of getting lost. Joining us now, Noah Smith, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Joining us from California, Noah, you wrote a uh, fantastic column about this, how probably the poverty rate is being understated. I want to start with why you think we are seeing bigger gains on the lower end of the job scale, some on the upper end, and kind of a loss in the middle.
1: Well, you know, that's a pretty recent phenomenon. Um, That's happened basically in the recovery from the Great Recession. We've seen low-wage jobs do okay uh you know we've seen high wage jobs do do okay and we've seen middle class jobs or in terms of wages um in terms of jobs you know unemployment's low everybody kind of has a job the question is where is the money going and uh and the question is why is this happening one hypothesis is just that a lot of places have raised their minimum wages and so that's going to affect people at the low end of the scale obviously much more and so uh um there's also the idea that sort of, you know, robots are hollowing out the, the middle class jobs. Automation is replacing people who sort of push paper around an office. But, uh, you know, it, instead it's replacing, it's turning people into basically like warehouse robots, um, you know, who are only useful for their ability to push things around because robots aren't good enough to do that yet. So that's another hypothesis. Um, I don't know how, to be honest, I don't know how how much either of those is really In effect, and I think what might have happened is just that low-wage, you know, um, low-wage, low-skilled jobs had had compressed uh, wages for so long that now that labor demand is high, they're the first ones to to ask for for raises. So that might be going on as well. So So, basically, we don't know.
3: Yeah. So Noah, your column. This is really interesting. I, I loved in the middle of your column. You you quoted a campaign slogan from 1928. Um, when the middle class is defined by having a chicken in every pot and a car in every backyard, uh, I'm assuming that's not how we define the middle class anymore. Uh, how do you think we should define the, the middle class, and, and do we need to change the way we define the middle class? Right.
1: Well, so um, basically, the middle class is a very squishy uh, term, but my column was really more about how we define poverty than about how we define the middle class. So. Um, we have two basic definitions of poverty. The first definition is sort of absolute poverty. You know, are you starving? And the second definition is relative poverty, which is just basically inequality. Like, do you have a lot less money than, you know, the, the median person? And so both of those are pretty inadequate because we'd, I hope that a rich society like ours would allow people to be able to do better than just, you know, eat and stay alive and um, and therefore, we should revise up our definition of poverty. But the inequality definition is all, also leaves a little bit to be desired, because, you know, if everybody gets fabulously rich, if some people get a little less fabulously rich, are they really poor, uh, especially compared to you know people in developing like countries in you know South Asia or Africa or somewhere. And so, both of these definitions of poverty leave something to be desired, but we have this sort of intuition. We look around and we see a lot of Americans that we call poor because they're always on the verge of getting evicted. They're always on the verge of a medical bankruptcy. They're always on the verge of not being able to pay for things. And this, this risk, you know, this precarity, always being on the verge of, of bad stuff um, is another definition of poverty and is another conception of poverty. And so I think that we need to add that. We need to you know, focus more on that as our definition of who's
3: poor.
0: Well, Noah, it's a fascinating column. I recommend everyone read it. Of course, the naysayers would would say, how big do you want the safety network to be that the government provides and who's going to pay for it? In other words, if you start defining uh, just the relative worth, net worth of a household, you're talking socialism, right? I mean, you start defining poverty as a relative game and trying to equalize things, then are you just heading toward a more socialist society?
1: Oh, well, of course, and that's why people define poverty that way. You know, obviously, socialists want everybody to get really, really, really upset over you know inequality, no matter how rich society gets. They, you know then then that doesn't allow society to grow its way out of out of its responsibility for redistribution, and there can be you know, sort of people getting upset about poverty, no matter how rich uh, the people we call poor would ever become. So obviously, you know i don't I don't really buy that. i you know I'm pretty skeptical of that. Uh, but that's, you know, my suggested definition of poverty isn't about inequality, it's about precarity, it's about risk, it's about security, it's about, you know, not just do you have enough to eat today, but do you know you'll have enough to eat tomorrow? Not just do you have a roof over your head, but do you know you'll have a roof over your head in a week? And, um, and things like that, those, those, are, those really fit into our intuitive definition of who's poor, but they don't fit into our official definition of who's poor yet.
3: How about with—so, Noah, with, with your proposed definition or, you know, just enhanced definition of what poverty is, how does the U.S. rank relative to some other developed markets?
1: It's hard to say because so far we don't collect uniform numbers about this. Probably we're going to be a little bit higher. Um, one thing is because, uh, you know, we're, we're a lot more of a spread-out country, and we have a lot more sort of these, like, you know, poor, neglected neighborhoods— um, You know, so um, I I think that we're going to have a bit higher of a poverty rate than other countries. But we already do, you know, by the other measures. So my guess is that the international comparisons won't come out very different.
0: From a policy perspective, what would change if they defined uh, poverty as what you're proposing?
1: Well, one thing is that um, sort of policies to, to make sure that people have material security would then take more center stage. So making sure that people have access to, you know, healthcare in an emergency takes more center stage. Making sure that you know people always get enough food, and uh, and also making sure that it's hard for people to get evicted. Have you ever read the book uh, Evicted, uh, it's a, it's yes, a really I great have. book. <laughs> oh yeah, it just it paints a really accurate picture of poverty, and you see that the problem with for these people is not that they're starving, right? And it's not that they're just resentful of some upper middle class people somewhere far away, the problem with the people is that they're always sort of on the edge of disaster. And so if we define these disasters, like lack of, you know, food insecurity, uh, probability of medical bankruptcy, probability of eviction, if we define those, and we, we add those to the poverty numbers, and we sort of you know, give local and state governments sort of some sort of incentive to improve those numbers. Yeah. Then I think they'll focus more on on policies that ensure material security, that protect people from eviction, that make sure that people have steady access to food. And, uh, and, you know, maybe it'll put pressure on the national government to make a better healthcare system than the one we have now.
0: Noah Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Noah Smith is Bloomberg Opinion columnist, talking about his column on poverty and how to measure it. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, thank you for having me. A pleasure having Taking you. Take care of me. Filling in today for Pim Fox, Paul Sweeney, who is the Director of North American Research uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Paul, since you are with us, uh, and since I've been spending so much time with you, I want to learn more about this really interesting dish story. They've kind of been having some pretty heated discussions and negotiations with HBO, which has led to a blackout. First, can you just tell us what's going on here, and then we'll get into sort of what this means.
3: Sure. I mean, uh, HBO, historically, you know, over the history of HBO, like other cable channels, They're they're carried by distributors, whether it's a cable company like Comcast or a satellite company like uh, Dish or uh, DirecTV. Uh, And typically, uh, the content owners, in this case HBO, uh, they charge for the right to distribute uh, their product, their their programming. And what happens occasionally is uh, you, know, you get a programmer like HBO and a distributor like Dish and they can't come to an agreement on those carriage fees and then they negotiate. Sometimes it gets ugly and the ultimate ugliness is when the uh, content owner, in this case HBO, says, ''Okay, I'll take my programming off the air. You're not going to get it anymore.'' Then what happens if, it, particularly if it's you know really valuable programming, is all the customers complain and they complain to their cable company or their satellite company, uh, and then usually they, uh, you know, that distributor will cave and you get the programming back back on. In this case, we're seeing Charlie Ergen at Dish, who is a very aggressive negotiator, saying, you know what, I don't need HBO programming. And uh, in, in addition, they've also dropped Univision, which is really problematic because. Uh, Dish tends to serve uh, communities with large Hispanic uh, populations simply because he's saying your programming is not worth what you're charging me for.
0: Okay, so I'm looking at Dish shares they are down 33% so far this year. Is Charlie Ergen wrong? I mean, is there a transformation uh, underway here that he is just kind of ignoring where they can distribute their content, HBO and Univision? online. They can bypass him.
3: Yep. And uh, by his own admission, Charlie Ergen will tell you he has a terrible business. The satellite TV business is a terrible business. He has said... That's uh, not encouraging. You no, don't want to not. hear that from the leader of exactly. your company. Exactly. And this was about four or five years ago. He gets on Ernie's call and he says, basically, my business is going to zero.
0: But buy my stock. Yes. And <laughs>
3: uh, and the reason is simply because you don't need My Dish to get programming. You can get more and more of it now online and you can use their There's substitutes like Netflix. Uh, and the real value for Dish. I however, is not in the core satellite business, but it's in their spectrum. They own tens of billions of dollars of wireless spectrum, and people own this stock simply because of the option value of that spectrum. What can Charlie Ergen do with all that spectrum? Will he build a new wireless uh, service for the United States, like we need another one of those, Uh, or will he build some other Type of network that can drive, um, you know, some of this tech technology we're seeing. We don't know, and Charlie Ergen doesn't know what he's going to do with the spectrum. And so, what's happened is people saying, "Gee, why am I owning the stock?" Your core business is going to zero, and I don't see a plan how you're going to monetize your spectrum.
0: So, I'm, what I'm struggling with at an era where everyone says content is king, what's he thinking? I mean, is I understand that he doesn't want to pay them, but at the same time it doesn't it help the business for its visibility and for its you know being able to market its spectrum in real time to yep. have these shows
3: yeah it, it, it does and that's historically the most of the leverage was on the part of the programmer um, and not the distributor because the programming really is the value content is king and all a satellite company is simply a dis- distributor and now as a content owner I have more ways to distribute my content I can go direct to the consumer uh, like HBO can do now with HBO now so if you're Charlie Charlie Ergen, you're in a bad negotiating position, and you're saying basically the economics for me, you know, just don't work. I operate in a business where I'm losing four to five percent of my subscribers every year, and if I deem a piece of programming not valuable to me, I'll, I'm just going to not. You know, pay for it and I'll suffer the consequences. I'm already losing subscribers. Um, so it's a very tough decision. Charlie Ergen is very much of a maverick. We don't see other uh, operators doing this to the degree that he does, uh, but he's just much more aggressive. And I think he has another end game again. He's more focused on how do I monetize my spectrum, um, and that's really the future for, of the company.
0: One thing I'm struggling to understand is just how many people do view HBO shows online. I mean, do you have a sense of how many people have moved to, to streaming? Uh, you
3: know, it's they haven't really disclosed. Uh, Time Warner has not disclosed it, but it's, it's probably 2 to 3 million already, so it's actually gaining some pretty good traction, um, and we're seeing some other... Um, uh, you know, direct-to-consumer uh, services also gaining traction. We've seen the Walt Disney Company say that they're going to take ESPN directly to consumers with ESPN Plus. They're going to take their all their movies and cool TV shows and all that stuff. In 2019, they're going to launch a direct-to-consumer service. So everybody's just trying to compete with Netflix, and that may end up being a losing battle for a lot of these media companies. Have
0: you cut the cable?
3: I have not, unfortunately. I, I'm one of Brian Roberts and Comcast's best customers. I can tell you that.
0: Oh yeah. Would you? What would? What would it take for you to cut the cord?
3: Um, just the courage to call up uh, the, those notoriously <laughs> aggressive uh, salespeople at Comcast. Who, oh my gosh. You, know, who, who you just, should
0: not be saying this out loud. Exactly. You're only going to embolden them. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's the com- the cable business. They have you with the bundle. That you know, it's really about having the broadband access in the home. That's really the value driver.
0: I love it. Getting bullied by those. Uh, they by are those very. Good at what they, do. they are very good at what Re- they do. They guilt yeah. you, trip you. They make you sort of explain your your psychological state it is when you know as to when you decided to cancel things. Yep. Tell you you know well, you're missing out. Yeah. We'll so that retention
3: this. salesperson is probably the most valuable salesperson that a cable company has.
0: Don't you? Don't you like me? <laughs>
3: right.
0: Paul Sweeney, thank you as always. You're going to be of course sticking with me. Uh, Paul Sweeney is the director of North American research at Bloomberg Intelligence, filling in for Pim Fox with me today.